I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast. The podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Welcome back, everybody, to Fighting on Film. Uh, this week is a uh, carry-on from our feature on uh, Homebrew History. Which was great fun. It was World War II TV. It was Joe and Bo of Homebrew. It was yours truly and, and, and Matt. And we had a blast just going through that film with a bit of a tooth comb. But we, ha- we hadn't had enough. We thought we'd go into the bulge again and just go in a little more in depth of what we thought about that quote-unquote movie. <laughs> so once again, I'm joined by Matthew Moss of The Armour's Bench. Hello, guys. Fair warning, there are probably going to be some exasperated expletives peppered throughout this episode. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take a look at this quote unquote classic to steal Robbie's line from before we start recording, um, <laughs> and we're gonna look at the Battle of the Bulge, which is a 1965 three hour long epic. Yeah, it's a long one, and you feel that three hours. You do. Oh it's God, a bit of a slog. Mm. So the film's kind of one of those films that historians love to hate. I think. Yeah. And if you heard our podcast with uh, Homebrew and uh, Paul of World War II TV, then you know that there was plenty of sort of frustration with how this film portrays the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. It's just it's just a mess. It is on on a number of levels. Like we, yeah. we, we even on that podcast, we even tried to like come up with some uh, thoughts on how it redeems itself. But honestly, we were kind of grasping at straws. It was tough. It, it was. So it has a stellar cast. Yeah, I mean it's it's got big hitters, big names. You know, Robert Shaw, Henry Fonda, Robert Ryan, T- Telly Savalas, Dana Andrews, 
don't know the guy's name, but the Tiger Tank Commander from Kelly's Heroes, he's in it. He is very briefly. He's like a Panzer Grenadier major, yeah, isn't he? Very yeah, briefly. Yeah. And uh, Hans Hans Christian Black is in there too. And it's one of those big budget films. Pack the film full of names. Pick a genre out of the hat and pick a, a plot out of the hat, it would seem, and make a big war epic and hope no one notices that it's rubbish and everyone just goes to see it. Yeah, it's it's a very hit and miss movie. But you've got some great performances in there, haven't you? We have. Like, There's some solid performances. There's some interesting things that they were hinting at historically, but sort of completely missed the mark on. Mm. It was directed by Ken Anakin who directed the British and French elements of The Longest Day. So looking at just the director's name, you would think, oh, okay, he'll do Longest he'll do Day pedigree, that's good, you know. Yeah. Because long, Longest Day is a you know, pretty decent film. So you would think, wow, okay, an epic on the Battle of the Bulge, yes, please. Mm. And it's in ultra-wide. Cinerama, a new widescreen format, I think they were playing around with. Um, it might actually be one of the first movies to use it. It's quite a big budget piece for the day. I think it's like upwards of five mil or something. You know, it's not small money for the time. And it shows, like, you know, they are putting a lot of money on the screen, showing off a lot of things, all the wrong things. Yes, and that's one of the issues with the film, isn't it? Like, almost every vehicle shown on screen is completely incorrect. Be it or in from the wrong a 19- colour or... In the- yeah. Oh, God. Be it from, like, a 1950s Cessna standing in for, like, a Lysander. Yeah. Uh, down to famously the, or infamously, would be, you know, uh, the King Tigers being portrayed by M48 Patton tanks. And the Chaffees and the Shermans. They're like Vietnam era tanks, aren't they? The, the Patton. Yeah, they're Cold War. They're like, they're like 50s, 60s era tanks. Oh, yeah, and yeah. For, for people that know a little bit about World War II vehicles and, you know, that kind of thing, it you can, you instantly recognize. And, it, and Battle of the Bulge isn't the only film to do that. And it is forgivable because, mm. you know, the climactic end battle is, is on a, pretty big scale you know there's a tank battle at the end of the, of, of the of the movie which entails probably like two dozen tanks yeah and you know there just aren't that many running shermans and king tigers no. around by 1965 the thing is so, there would have there would have been enough panzers and there probably would have been enough shermans if you'd have really looked the trouble is getting them all to spain ah yes because of course you would film a battle of the bulge film in spain yes you know that this is one of them the key if like one of my key things with the film is a film portraying a battle in the depths of winter there is very little snow barely any snow it's amazing how much um southern spain does not look like the ardennes no it doesn't it doesn't (laughs) you know if they were fighting in italy maybe yeah you, you could get away with it yeah if it was the if they were fighting on the gothic line you might go on away with right. it. Maybe in certain sections where it's a bit muddy and there's a little bit yeah, of snow. Yeah, and, and, and there's some trees. Well, take for instance the scene, the forest scene. That could be the art then. I yes, that's possible. I you know, really... there's a fair bit of snow on the ground. Exactly. But then that part where Robert Shaw, who plays the main Nazi bastard, we haven't quite made that clear, but he he's your main man, your main antagonist. When he gets his King Tigers, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. Um, that painfully is in the courtyard of a load of villas in the middle of summer in Spain. So I suppose the best thing to do would be to sort of like run down some of the main characters that we're going to talk about before we we get fully into it. So we have Robert Shaw as a sort of um, Piper slash Rommel-esque character who is like a a Nazi panzer commander. That's it. We called him Pommel on the homebrew, didn't we? (laughs) 
Yeah, Pommel. Pommel. Um, then we have uh, Henry Fonda as uh, an American uh, intelligence lieutenant colonel yeah, who yeah. believes that there's going to be an offensive, but no one will believe. you got to listen to me. <laughs> then we have Robert Ryan, who is an American divisional commander. Uh, then we have Dana Andrews, who is sort of Henry Fonda's foil. He's his superior officer in the intelligence corps who just does not believe there is going to be a, a, a Nazi offensive. And then we have Charlie Bronson, who is a grizzled infantry major who pops up throughout the film. And that's yeah. about it, really. They're the major characters. Yeah. And then you get like odd hangers on, like a lieutenant and a sergeant. Yes. And you get Telly Savalas's tank commander. For me, apart from Robert Shaw and his mate, um, Conrad. Played by Hans Christian Black. Hans Christian Black. Every single other character is interchangeable. Yeah. I didn't know who was who half the time. It pains me to say it. I, I found it really hard to keep up with who was who. If I didn't know the actors by the look of them, it was just generic army man number one, generic GI number two. You know, no one was a standout apart from Shaw and Conrad because they were they were on screen the most. It's definitely focused around their relationship. Yeah, I found it a very jarring watch in that regard. So I was like, hang on a minute, who who's your main characters then? We don't spend enough time with Robert Shaw for it to be solely about him, but we don't spend enough time with Henry Fonda or Robert Ryan for it to be completely about the American side. There's balancing issues all the way through it. There is. And for a three-hour film, there is more than enough time to set up all these characters in a way that Mm. we feel connected to them, but we don't. Let's take um, the infantry lieutenant and the sergeant, for instance. We we follow a, a US unit which meets the Germans first. So they're the point of contact in the line where the, the German offensive breaks through. And we get introduced to this sort of lackadaisical uh, lieutenant that pays no interest in what his men are doing yeah. because it's cold and they're in the bunker and it's nearly Christmas and the war's nearly over. And they wouldn't know that either, which really annoyed me. No, they wouldn't. They, they sort of say, well, on the radio, it's saying the war's nearly over. Like, mm, I don't know whether they you know, would have just assumed that. I don't know. And then we have his gung-ho sort of sergeant who's like, you know, wants to take the men out for drill, wants to go on patrol, wants to wants to actually like be a soldier, more or less. And that sort of bumps up against this lieutenant who doesn't want to be a soldier, quite clearly. So the battle begins and the lieutenant is clearly absolutely useless. And eventually he ends up getting most of his platoon killed and him and the sergeant are eventually captured later on. That character, it doesn't, evolve or there's no development of the character it jumps from personality trait to personality trait and there's a lack of character cohesion across the whole cast basically or it's like little vignettes of scenes like apart from a few very very Mm. key scenes there's no standout parts of the movie they're all they're all like little sketches almost yeah and and i think for the american side at least i never feel like they're a cohesive part of the film we see like probably two thirds of the cast is the American side. And we have the only Germans we really see are Robert Shaw's character, the Panzer commander and Hans Christian Black. They're the, they're the sole two German characters that like have any kind of sounding board off one another. Mm. Whereas the Americans, they don't have sounding boards off one another. There's, there's no like interaction between a lot of the characters. No. So with Henry Fonda's character, they basically, he's trying to convince the generals or his commanding officer, that there's going to be a German offensive. Mm. And they just flatly just don't believe him. No, they don't. And that's that's your plot, isn't it? Oh, there's not going to be an attack. Oh, there is. Oh, there's not. Oh, there is. And then, lo and behold, there is an attack. 
And at least with the, I think the reason why the German side becomes more prominent is because the film kind of has actually has something to say there. Mm. It's discussing. So you have Conrad, Hans Christian Black's character, um, voicing his like, he's he's war weary. He's been in since 1940. He he's tired. He's been on the Eastern Front. He's been on the Western Front. He doesn't want to be a soldier anymore. He doesn't want his children to be soldiers. Whereas Hessler is ardent he's an ardent nazi he believes Proper in, he believes in war. he yeah. wants to fight yeah. he enjoys fighting he lives for fighting he's the ace panzer commander well, he's, like, he's like a commando book villain yeah he's he? kind of a caricature in that respect hessler from hell exactly yeah that'd be that'd be that'd be that issue's name and they have this sort of back and forth where comrades like i don't want my children to be fighting a perpetual war and Hester's like, the best thing that we can hope for is perpetual war. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I was just like, what is he talking about? Wow, okay. That's the only part of this film that has anything to actually say. One of the things we talked about on the on um, Homebrew Histories podcast was how weird it was that they took the Battle of the Bulge and then proceeded to like not tell the story of the Battle of the so Bulge. So stupid, yeah. So we see Bastogne, like the most famous like part of the Battle of the Bulge, you know, with the... the the commander of the uh, the town saying like nuts we're not going to surrender you know they shoehorn that in purely because they wanted to get the iconic nuts line your movie should be centered around the stone for god's sake that's your film that has a narrative it's not like the battle has any shortage of interesting no. things going on there are so many encirclements there are so many amazing stories individual like unit actions that are yeah. just like fascinating for research for this pod i watched a, an eight a 70s documentary that the british army made about the ardennes offensive there's so many parts in that where i'm like oh wow like everything you look at has something interesting to say yet this movie has nothing interesting to say no it doesn't leave you wanting to then go and like look into the battle because it kind of just like leaves you thinking oh okay it's like it's someone has a book on the battle of the bulge they haven't read it properly. They've read the blurb or they've looked at the contents page and gone, right, I'm going to make a movie about the Battle of the Bulge now. Right, here's my checklist. I've got um, German commando infiltrators, check. I've got mass German panzers, check. I've got um, embittered but, but very, very hard-fighting um, defensive American action, check. You know, I've got snow, snow. sort of, check. You know, <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like half the time. No one sat down and gone, right, we need a coherent narrative here because this is a big war epic movie. And now, fuck it, we'll just have loads of explosions. As I was saying, like, there is a lack of cohesion within the characters. Mm. There's also a lack of cohesion within the larger plot. So the whole plot seems to be there's going to be a German offensive, but they need to reach a fuel dump to enable that, a fuel, that offensive to actually be a success. Mirage in the desert, millions of yeah. gallons of fuel dump. The writers of the film have clearly gone like, okay, there was a fuel so shortage for the for the um, the Wehrmacht. They needed fuel. Um, okay, fuel mm. dump. The whole film is going to be revolving around getting to a fuel dump. There we go. But that will only become clear maybe two hours into the film. That's not correct. Not historically, they went. No. The whole point of the campaign was not to capture fuel. Germans capturing um, massive supply halls was was not uncommon during that action. The main thrust was towards Antwerp try and take a port to cut the allies in half they explain that at the beginning but then all we follow is Hessler's panzers quickly do away with it yeah yeah there's that's it like it's it's made clear that Hessler's armoured spearhead is all we're going to see of the, mm. you know the German uh, offensive and that's it which is fine fair enough if they'd done it properly 
before we go into like the parts that we want to talk about in more depth, it feels like a film. I think Matt, I think you'll agree. It's a movie that for some reason, someone decided it was going to be an epic, but it actually needed to yeah. be a small studio piece a la Battleground. It needed to be more focused, definitely. Yeah, because you can tell a much better story about the way the Ardennes was fought by doing it smaller. Honestly, if you compare this to Battle... Uh, if you compare Battle of the Bulge to, say, Bridge Too Far, a Bridge Too Far is shorter and does a better job of showing a hugely ambitious sort of campaign and battle than this does. So if you take if you take Charlie Bronson's character, the Grizzled Army Major, he begins the film as as someone who's war weary and then has a sort of rant about how uh how much he hates the germans which is fair enough you know definitely definitely yeah, yeah. a feature but then later on he sort of like becomes like light-hearted and jokey and he's like yeah there's a scene where they're fortifying the, the fictional town of amblev which is actually like the town itself doesn't exist it's a, a local river they just picked the name and decided to make probably Amblev. because probably because they knew full well they were making it up yes i think that's very true and he's basically like running around trying to rally everyone he's like get your rifles lunch is over you know he's got these like snappy little lines he's like you're in the infantry now yeah the cooks but we're making dinner oh you're in the infantry now kid some of the best parts of the film are like henry fonda and charles bronson scenes where they're like um you know they're, they're having a bit of repartee and you know they're chatting and he's like Last time, last time I needed a rifle and you handed me a rifle and he's like, here, take mine. And, you know, and it's like, there yeah. was some of like the only American scenes where you're like, you get any kind of like back and forth that isn't just either exposition or pointless. I even think the scenes with the non-American Americans, the, the infiltration commandos under oh Otto Scorsini, yeah. their scenes with the other Americans at the bridge is way more interesting because they're pretending to be American, but they're doing a better fucking job of it than the, the American characters in the bloody film. Uh, but they famously didn't do as much as this movie purports them to do. And I yeah, think this it kind of makes them look like linchpin element, yeah. doesn't it? But We were saying beforehand, well, I was saying to you that this film is dangerous because it presents fiction as fact. It does, But yeah. it's done it such a long time ago and been one of those films that gets wheeled out again and again and again because it's a big mm. epic. You can stick it on channel four at like three o'clock in the afternoon you know you've got a certain amount yeah. of people for like three hours but Whereas longest day and bridge too far are forgivable like at least yeah. they're they have historical accuracy sort of within them exactly this, this is just there's only Fantasy. the most tiny kernel grain of like well, it's like the tip of the iceberg isn't it yes the facts this movie on the myths this movie purports are, mm. are, are really bad like it wasn't about fuel it's annoying from a watching it as someone who studies history it, it, it pisses me off and that, that's what makes it one of these films that historians love to hate the entirety of the film is very slow mm. for what is supposed to be a fast-paced campaign it's quite slow there isn't a shot fired until an hour into the film. It's very preamble, isn't it? Yeah. We have and to explain when... where we are. We have to explain. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We're doing exactly. And then when we do like have some action sequences, they're very sort of oddly choreographed. The infantry ones. The, the tank battle at the end is interesting. It's not very super accurate but it's interesting infantry like pirouetting when they get hit or you know like people running around not knowing what they're doing everyone sort of you know falls down like they're trying to do the olympic gymnastics (laughs) it's really off-putting and especially with them when the malmody massacre is is shown that really jars me really rubs me up the wrong way that's one of the the scenes that i was going to bring up Mm. um that I, I really don't like. I don't like how they used probably one of the worst war crimes on the on, on like the, the in the northwestern Europe theatre as a plot point. Mm. It's not even like a, a significant plot point. There's a yeah. there's a scene which is supposed to be hard hitting following that with Hessler and um uh, Charles Bronson's character where he, Charles Bronson's been been captured and he sort of like tries to push Hessler uh to to perhaps like shoot him you know to to make sure his men were safe yeah but i i I just thought well this is very weird way of handling this very this awful massacre that happened yeah like 200 plus men were killed i think and and it just sort of it's it's odd it's an odd scene well there was multiple multiple atrocities um committed by piper's Mm. division choosing to like use that part of the movie to get a character out of that situation so they can turn up later on in the film is fucking wrong. This movie could have alluded to it, but not shown it. Or it could have it could have shown it, but just... In a more tasteful way. In a way which would have been more impactful. And that's where the movie, for me, just loses all credibility. Because after that, I was like, you know what, if they're going to do that, then fuck the rest of this film. It's quite upsetting, really. I can, yeah, I can, I can definitely agree with that. Well, that's the most impassioned thing we've ever yeah. got onto, really, exactly. on the pod so far. So move, moving on from um, the massacre scene, we should probably discuss some of the other scenes that we wanted to like uh, discuss in a little bit more detail. Mm. So um, for me, one that jumps out is in the first hour of the film, there's a scene where Hessler's being... Basically, the, op- the, the operational plan is being uh, explained to him. He's taken into this side room where there's a load of models. Airfix kit? Yeah, F- giant airfix kits sprayed silver. One five scale. They're sort of engineering <laughs> models that, you know, you like see of like prototype cars. He sort of like points to a, a generic jet of like the 50s shape and goes, this is the new ME262. We have squadrons of these. Yeah, I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm like, no, you like, don't. No. Um, and then he points to like the V1 and the V2 models, which are actual look like actually they look, don't too bad. Yeah. They look more like what they're supposed to be than anything else in this room. 
The ME262 looks nothing like an ME262. No. And the no. King Tiger that they then turned to looks absolutely nothing like a King Tiger, <laughs> which we'll get to in a second. But anyway, so he's, he's talking to Hessler and he says, yeah, the V1 has already destroyed 20% of London, which no, no, it hasn't. Even the Luftwaffe hasn't destroyed 20% of, of, of London. And then he turns to the new, the new King Tiger. And he's like, this is the new King Tiger tank. We'll have... Hundreds of these, if not more. 20% more armor, 50% better gun. <laughs> you know, it's like really sort of selling it, isn't he? You might as well get the fucking brochure out and be like, the King Tiger is better in many respects to the normal Tiger. Has Sir considered the new King Tiger, you know? and It's the King Tiger, new from Porsche. <laughs> and Hessler's like, it's a lovely model. It just doesn't give a shit, though. <laughs> like, it is a lovely yeah. model. But it's a model of a patent tank. Yeah. It isn't a King Tiger. And the, the, the poor art department has clearly like had to make a, a model of, the, of patent the, tank. a fiberglass silver patent tank purely because you know that's what they're, they're calling the King Tiger. And you're thinking, oh. But they could have made that model a, a real King Tiger. And I wouldn't have been annoyed that when they showed the tanks they had were patents. Because I'd be like, oh, okay. This, that's as close as they could get. That's fine. But because they show a pattern, I'm like, what is this pattern appreciation society? But I think the funniest thing for me in that scene is like Robert Shaw just doesn't care. No, he doesn't. He's he's, he's sort of unbelieving until he gets gets shown oh, the tanks. Like, wow. He's like, he's like, I'm not going to believe. I'm mm. not going to believe anything that you're saying until I've seen the tanks. And then he's shown the tanks and it's quite clearly in a square full of villas in yeah. Spain. And it is not war-torn. Yeah, in the middle of blazing heat. Eastern Germany. It, Western Germany. <laughs> but that whole scene is, is just staged weird because he goes, oh, please, come to my war room sort of thing. Well, it's half an hour of exposition, isn't it, for like explaining the whole operational plan. <laughs> he, like, he like sort of motions over but it, and then the room sort of opens up, but they were there the whole time. And I'm like, so Robert Shaw's already seen these models. He must have yes, cocked that's true. It's just like... was, he, was, he, was he being polite and not asking about the models because he knew he was going to be showing them? Or was he don't just like... The models. Don't ask about the models. Don't ask about the models. Don't, don't. This is a nice painting you have. That's a lovely chandelier. Oh, I love this map of the Ardennes. Got any plans? <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the scenes I'm like, that's a kind of an early warning that this film is not going to be... Fantastic, no. But props to the amount of tanks they had. Yeah, they didn't yeah. just keep using oh, the yeah. same. I mean, there's very few films of the day that you know could boast over a dozen. If tanks. you've seen any footage of the Ardennes proper, you know there is the same footage of the same King Tiger going down the same road, or the, the same Panzer going up the same ravine. At least they didn't just fall back on stock footage and it not sort of fit in. At least they went for their own. We're going to mm. do our own. Well, they they must have had to have done. You know, well, it would yeah. have just looked completely yeah. out of step with really that weird ultra wide. Yeah aspect they were going for for me it has to be the chocolate cake scene and and it, mm. and i know you're you're thinking what chocolate cake in a war film what <laughs> just before the intermission yes this film has a fucking intermission um which is preposterous we're definitely gonna have to mark this one as explicit yeah, ladies sorry. and gentlemen because it's, it's incensed robbie sorry <laughs> It's just really like grandiose filmmaking to have an intermission in your three hour long movie. Like, I know how long the movie is. I don't need you to remind me. Anyway, so Robert Shaw, his superior are in Robert Shaw's little caravan. Like, where does he come from? Where's yeah, the general he just turns from? Up from Berlin, I assume. I assume they were in Berlin. But... It doesn't doesn't tell you where they are. No, like one minute he's seen like in the... In the... the Führer bunker, you know. Yeah. 
like discussing the yeah. plan and being told nuts by the <laughs> yeah. by the, uh, the, then he's on the front line. commandant of um, Bastogne, yeah. and then the next minute he turns up right at the front line, like at the the spearhead unit, <laughs> exactly, like literally maybe half an hour away from the fighting. So Robert Shaw's like, you know, oh, we're doing quite well, and and the the major goes, no, you're behind schedule. What's the matter? You know, time time is so important to this attack. Yeah. You know, he keeps getting it rammed home to him that you have to be on time. And and that was, you know, that that's not wrong. You know, the, the Germans were on no. a pretty tight schedule because they knew they could only get so far. Well, they only had the limited air Exactly, cover, yeah, they, they knew really... the minute the... They knew the minute Allied air power... It's one of the few things the film actually kind of gets yeah, right, you I know, think. Allied air power would be the undoing of them, and it was. There's a table, and it's got like a little glass of wine on it or champagne or something, and it's got like a, some some forks and knives. And it doesn't really... You don't really notice you, you, you're seeing Robert Shaw and the fat major having a bit of a tiff. And then Robert Shaw sort of goes over to the table and he uncovers this like little wax paper sort of parcel. And he goes, yep. look at this, look at this. And you're like, what, what the hell is that? You know, you're looking at it, It's like, this is why we're this here. This is why we're here. Sort like, of thing. We're, we're here because of chocolate yeah, cake. What? Yeah. And it's, a, it's just like, it's really like sort of brightly brown chocolate cake, you know, and all it's technicolor wonder. And you're thinking, what the <laughs> hell? Like, what? What is he gonna? He's gonna ask him to share some? You know, like it's so weird. Like, please have some cake. Yeah, but he basically explains that that's why he's being so persistent with the yeah, attack on this that's town. That's why he wants to crush the the spirit of the American fighting man because the Americans have the ability to have a fresh chocolate cake delivered to the front line. Uber Eats, 1944. And I kind of get what they're saying but I kind of yes. don't. <laughs> they're trying to get across that, you know, they're, they're making this last ditch effort in the face of the Americans are spending and wasting their fuel. To bring a chocolate or, cake up. I suppose not wasting, but, you yeah. know, transporting cake across there that's still fresh. And then literally mm. the end of that moment, it cuts the intermission screen and you're left there thinking like, okay, but cake, what? It doesn't process very well for me. It doesn't, flow no, very well no. if it had cut to him like if it if he'd opened the cake and then he'd be like shown it to the major and then cut to intermission like what what the hell was that like i think he's a major general major general if if it had cut like, yeah. oh cake what the hell's going on here like this is interesting mm. but because he's explained it and you're trying to process what he's getting at it's just oh it's just jarring it's it's an odd scene they were obviously trying to like it's a weird hill to die on it is and they are trying to explain like the Futility of this German offensive in the mm. face of Allied uh, logistical power. Is it pro then offensive from the Germans' perspective at times? Because sometimes the movie does fall into that sort of weird sort of who am I actually rooting for? Well, I think that comes from as we were saying earlier with the the Conrad Hessler mm. sort of relationship being the only Germans we see. It kind of heavily focuses on them, and obviously Robert Shaw basically carries this film acting wise he really does you know henry F henry fonda's not bad charlie bronson's okay although his character is really badly written and then of course we have like telly savalis's character who's like sort of an afterthought we'll go to that in a minute robert shaw's king tiger suspension is buckling under the weight of the carrying this movie telly savalis's character again is, is just another great example of like weird character sort of development because he goes from this cheeky chappy black market dealer on i've got my merch yeah, a bit of a spiff. merchandise yeah mm. and his tanks called like bargain basement or something 
Yeah, he's like a he's a wheelie yeah, dealer yeah. basically, and he's a profit from the war. Like he says at one point, "I came into this war poor. I'm not going to go home poor." Yeah. You know, you know, which is fair. You know, you think, "Oh, okay, yeah. he's going to be our." He's obviously the comic relief at the time. He was known as a bit of a, especially if you've seen Kelly's Heroes. Yeah, exactly. You know, he plays a a better version of this character, sort of in Kelly's Heroes. I would say, yeah, highly. That's very fair to say, yeah. from this movie. But mm. he goes from like sort of you know counting up his stocks, trying to get out of the line so he can go and check on his merchandise to getting to this brothel i assume that he's got all his gear in i think she's just a normal nice lady actually really i think really i i assumed that she was just just his business partner i didn't i I mean maybe she was meant to be a prostitute that didn't come across for me he kind of accuses her of being a prostitute and she's very shocked because when when he asks that soldier later on in the film what happened to the of like a hotel uh, Amblev. Yeah. Yeah. In Amblev. I thought yeah. you meant like the local whorehouse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I suppose with it being a hotel, you might think I that. Know. I don't know. Because I... where else could you hide contraband in a big way? Rented room in a hotel. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. The weirdest part of that scene is where he finds out that she actually like is in love, love with him. him. Yeah. And he hasn't clicked no. on that. And then he sort of like thinks about it for a second while holding a chicken. He tells the tells chicken to shut yeah, up. Yeah, like there's this weird <laughs> like comic relief effort kind of going on while he's trying to like decide whether he loves this woman yeah. back. And he kind of just goes, oh no, yeah, I do. I do actually quite like it. Yeah, yeah. And then when he finds out that the hotel has been leveled. He turns into a gibbering wreck though, doesn't he? Yeah, he kind of becomes obsessed with like getting back at the Germans. Kill all the Germans. You know, and at the end, his tank gets a direct hit on the turret and somehow they're still, Very still able to drive it and just yeah. sit in this smashed turret that's open with half his dead crew in it, thinking that he can take on the, an, the 6th Panzer Army with just a thirty caliber machine gun. But then in the end, he's the hero of the film because he manages to drive them all to the fuel depot. Yeah. It's like so. This is, who's the fucking main character then? There, there is. Oh, one, I, oh, it's so annoying. It's it's a really poorly written ensemble. Yeah. Piece. Yeah. That's what the problem with this film is. It's just it lacks cohesion, and it's just mm. it lacks cohesion with the writing, with the plot, and with the character mm. sort of arcs that it creates. And it's yeah. And a casualty of that at the side of all this is historical accuracy. Massively. Yeah. It's sacrificed to the gods of cinema making ways. It's like, nope, we've got we've got a basic plot that we're gonna hang all this pretty poor writing on yeah. and that's that's what we're going with. And it's just you end up thinking, this is a really like wasted opportunity. Like people are gonna watch this and think this is what the Battle of the Bulls is actually still like. Do. Yeah, that's the that's the yeah. sad thing because this movie's not faded in like on every Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I, I suggest this is the biggest film we've covered so far on the on the pod in like terms of popularity and and thank you to everyone for hanging with us while we do yeah, some massive, relatively obscure films. Don't worry, we'll, we're going to continue doing the obscure weird ones, but we will be getting to some um, probably slightly better known ones. But thank you for listening anyway and bearing with us while we do such obscure ones as Miss Grant Goes to the Door. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame that they sacrifice accuracy for, for spectacle, mm-hmm. because I think if the film had, had stuck to its gun, stuck to historical guns a little bit more, then it it yeah. would probably be really, really much more revered. Because if you want to sit down for three hours and, and leave your brain at the door and watch a mindless war flick, this mm. isn't bad. You know, I, I always say it's like a couple of beers, a couple of beers and a packet of crisps, and you'll be all right. But it's not when you're sitting down going... Definitely more than two beers, but yeah. I mean, depends <laughs> on what you can stomach. I think one of the problems is it's, it's sort of... They've hung the film on an actual 
battle that occurred, but they've given it sort of a very loose affiliation to the actual historical accuracy of of that battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've if they'd made a film set in late 1944 northern northwest europe but they couldn't do that they've they've given it sort of like this central hook of it being the battle of yeah, the bull they decided it's a historical documentation of an event like longest day so chosen to do the whole operation yeah from start to finish as well which is ambitious and really in a 3 hour film you should have been able to do mm-hmm. that because the longest day managed to, to cover the you know, the, the largest amphibious operation yeah. history's ever seen. A bridge too far managed to cover the largest airborne operation history's ever seen. Why couldn't this film manage yeah. to encapsulate the battle in a more historically accurate way? I don't know. Because now I think you, you chomp at the bit to tell the, the bulge right because it's so interesting. It's an overwhelming force versus an underwhelmed force. There's so much there, but yet this movie just doesn't bother to show any of it. But because I can't get on board with the plot and because I I find it very difficult to pinpoint people and characters because of the poor plot development, because of the everyone is wearing pretty much the same jacket with no unnecessary like train journeys. Yeah, just just sort random of trains shoehorned in. Shoehorned in. No one's got insignia on, no one's got thank God I knew what sergeant stripes looked like, or I couldn't tell who people were half the time. Because they look mm. so generic. You know, it's it's almost like you know, they're not we're not trying to offend or we're not trying to show any units that we're fighting in case we get it wrong, but we'll get the rest of the fucking film's plot wrong. But at least we have battleground, which oh, did thank it. Thank God we have battleground. You know, and we will cover battleground. You know, you want to watch a bulge movie? Battleground is your movie, and it's got snow. Much more snow. Much more snow. Ten out of ten. Would watch again. <laughs> but it's definitely going to be one that we're going to cover. Yeah. In a in a future episode soon, hopefully. And it manages to do what. Battle of the Bulge does in a much smaller scale, but show the whole thing as well through good mm. filmmaking. And very much like theirs is the glory. Like it, it only shows the battle in Arnhem and Oosterbeek to a, a degree. Mm. It doesn't show, you know, Grave or uh, any of the other sorts of operations that were going on. Yeah. But you get a whole, you get the whole story through yeah. that microcosm. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what a good movie should do if it's telling a historical mm. plot, which Battle of the Bulge doesn't do. And that's its main failing. Exactly. And that's why historians love to hate it. And that's why we thoroughly dislike it at FOF HQ. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, guys. Be sure to leave a like, uh, comment, review on whatever platform that you're listening to and subscribe there as well so you hear future episodes of Fighting on Film. A big thank you to our executive producer, Katie Maguire, for helping with the show. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.